I just want to open with a question. And the question for us all to think about it for a minute is just, what sort of things make you angry? What makes you angry? What bothers you? What things or people upset you in the world? This is, yeah, what really gets your goat? Because thinking about that question um, last night, I actually met, I had an example of something that made me angry very close at hand last night. And Rudy and I had gone away for a few days over half term. And while we were away, our bath was being replaced upstairs by our landlord. When we got home last night, the bath looked great. But then we opened the living room door and just a steady drip of water had been falling from upstairs for the three days we'd been away. So the carpet was soaking. It's a lovely smell of damp. And um, yeah, this morning the plumber arrived. He's hopefully going to fix it sometime today, but he did arrive very early this morning to wake us all up after our <laughs> lie-in, which could have been nice. And basically, just yeah, it was all quite a frustrating night last night. Dripping water, cold house, damp carpet. So I found it last night that bad plumbing makes me angry. Um, and I don't know what you would come up with if you had to think about that. But anger can actually be a troubling emotion for us. And particularly if you're a Christian here this morning, anger is something we can maybe struggle with. And when we all feel angry sometimes, sort of day-to-day frustrations like maybe noisy neighbours or um, difficult work colleagues or just, just difficulties in life can make us angry. And some of us can express that anger very freely. Um, and others try to hide the anger they feel. They think it's wrong to express anger. See, we're suspicious of anger generally. We're wary of it because we know when we get angry, often that can just get out of control. Some of us perhaps grew up in angry homes where maybe one or more members of our family were, were very angry people. Some of that anger might have led to violence or just to a very tense environment where cruel things were said, things that are very hard to forget. Anger can lead people to say things they're going to regret. But at the same time, there's another question that we can ask about anger. And that's this. Is it ever right to get angry? Because we instinctively we feel that sometimes it is right to get angry. A few months ago in one of our youth groups, we were thinking a bit about this. And I was asking the group, you know, sort of, when is it, when do you feel angry? Various, various answers came up, mainly to do with um, Swiss referees um, in the European Championships. Um, but basically we then thought about, when, is it right to get angry? Is it ever right to be angry? And basically we came up with lots of reasons where it was right to get angry. We thought it was right to be angry about injustice in the world. We thought it was right to be angry at innocent people being hurt. So it was right to be angry when lies are told to people. So we know anger can get out of control, but equally, there is a place for anger in the Christian life. And then we went on to talk about anger and God. Again, the question we asked is, what sort of things make God angry? And again, this is a very difficult question. This is the idea of God being angry is one that divides a lot of Christians today. Some Christians find the idea of an angry God just too much. It's just horrific to contemplate. 
They feel that an angry God is the opposite of a loving God. An angry God is a cruel God. And so they don't want to think about God ever being angry. Other Christians see all the passages in the Bible, in the Old Testament and the New Testament, that deal with God's anger, and they're forced to ask, well, what does it mean when the Bible says that God is angry? I mean, Jesus got angry when he was on the earth. Again, we looked at that in our youth group. He got angry with the hypocrisy of religious leaders. One day he got so angry he actually expelled people by force from the temple. He threw them out because of the way they were just stamping all over his father's holiness. So the Bible does tell us that God does feel anger at certain things, that Jesus got angry at times. But what can we learn from when the Bible describes a godly anger? Because this morning, I think, in 2 Peter 2, we come to a passage where Peter appears to be angry. And the cause of his anger, I think, helps us understand a bit more about when anger is justified for a Christian. And when God gets angry and what sort of things make God angry. So basically the question to open with, really, in 2 Peter 2, is what makes Peter angry here? And I think the answer to that might come as a bit of a shock to us. Because the answer is that false teaching makes Peter angry. So angry that he devotes a large part of a very short letter to denouncing false teachers and false teaching. See, false teaching makes Peter angry because it distorts the gospel of grace that was so precious to him and so precious to the Christians he's writing to. And that's the same gospel he's determined to pass on to his readers before he dies. We looked at a bit of that last week. And again, it struck me, looking at this chapter in the last few days, that what makes Peter angry here, false teaching, doesn't actually make me angry very much. And it doesn't make many Christians angry today. If you ask the Christian what makes them angry, again, I think a lot of the answers would be the answers that our youth group came up with. Injustice, people getting hurt, people being stomped over. And again, it's right to say in recent years, many of the churches in the West have been rightly challenged by the fact that we have often tolerated injustice and inequality in the world. See, Christians have been called upon afresh to listen to God's word when it calls on God's people to care for the poor and the marginalized. And we've been seeing that already in the passage in Isaiah we've been looking at, the opening chapters of Isaiah that Peter's been taking us through. We've seen God's passionate concern for the poor and for the marginalized. I just was looking at Isaiah chapter 1 when I was thinking about this. Just read a few verses from that, 15 to 17. God speaking, Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Defend the cause of the fatherless. Plead the cause of the widow. See, God gets angry at injustice and we have to realise that and take that on board. However, while we're being challenged to listen to God's words on issues of justice, many of our churches and Christian organizations ignore what God's word says about the dangers of false teaching. See, what we've too often lost sight of is what drives Peter 
in this letter and in this chapter we're looking at the importance of teaching one another and reminding one another about Jesus Christ. Of teaching one another and reminding one another of the truth, more importantly, about Jesus Christ. See, again, looking at this chapter, I think we can often think that the task of understanding the Bible, the task of thinking about Bible doctrine, of understanding the big picture of who God is and what he's done in history, often we think that's really the job of a pastor or maybe someone on the staff of a church. It's their job. Maybe a few amateur theologians here and there will like to read up a bit on these things. But for the rest of us, what we should be concerned with is just getting on and living the Christian life. It's not that important that we think about all these issues of teaching or false teaching. Just get on and live it. See, for most of us, doctrine, Bible teaching, they aren't that important. And certainly they're not something worth getting angry about. Now the problem with that position does become clear when we look at this chapter of Peter's. See, the problem with us saying that it doesn't matter about getting Bible teaching right is that Peter passionately disagrees with us, if that's what we think. See, we've spent the last few weeks looking at why Peter was writing this letter. He's writing this letter to equip and encourage Christians for the Christian life, to prepare them for when Peter and the other apostles are going to be gone when they die. And Peter's desire is that his readers are going to be firmly established in the gospel of grace, that they're going to know Jesus Christ so well that they will keep going in their living for him until they die. You see, Peter isn't writing as a theologian here. He's not writing as some sort of dry academic. He's writing as a pastor who passionately loves the people he's writing to. See, Peter would eventually be killed for following Jesus, for holding fast to the Christian faith. He'd be killed under the Emperor Nero. So for him, the Christian life and Christian teaching was never a dry or academic thing. He was willing to die for the truth about Jesus and the gospel of grace. So here in chapter 2 of 2 Peter, Peter wants us to know how important it is that we understand fully who Jesus is. How important it is that we know that and how important it is that we pass on what we know about Jesus. See, he's not interested in just giving information for an interested minority, maybe the theologians in the church. He wants his readers to know about false teaching and false teachers because of the terrible harm they can do. See, as we saw last week at the end of chapter 1, if we forget the gospel of grace, then it's going to affect the whole of our Christian lives. We're going to become joyless people, legalistic people. And Peter tells us here that any distortions of the gospel of grace and the Lord of grace, of Jesus Christ, is going to have a terrible effect on our Christian lives also on how we live for Jesus and tell others about him. See, false teaching doesn't just affect our thinking about God. It affects our whole lives. And so we need to be on our guard against it. And that's what Peter's urging us to do here. He urges us to open our eyes to the reality of false teachers and false teaching, 
to God's response to false teaching and to see through the false teachers what they claim for themselves, what they claim for us so that basically we won't fall into the same trap as the false teachers have. So, let's turn briefly to this chapter then and hear what Peter has to say to us about this false teaching. And the first thing is looking at verses 1 to 3. And I'll just read those out for us. But there are also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. Many will follow their shameful ways and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. In their greed, these teachers will exploit you with stories they have made up. Their condemnation has long been hanging over them and their destruction has not been sleeping. See, in these opening verses here, Peter's saying, there have always been false teachers. Always in the history of God's people, there have been people who have distorted God's message. And Peter warns the Christians here that when he's gone, there still will be false teachers. There always will be false teachers. And I remember realising that for the first time in my own life. Because it came as a real blow to me. I became a Christian, I was very young. And as a teenager, I got involved with youth groups, other Christian teenagers. And I was so excited as a Christian at school by the unity that I have with other Christians around me. That we can actually be united around Jesus. We can be totally different people we could enjoy that unity of being a Christian. See, to me, the idea that there could be people who claim to be Christian, but who in fact denied Jesus and denied the Gospel, was a totally alien one. But I soon did confront it in my Christian life. And later on, as a student, I probably went to the opposite extreme sometimes. I became a little too interested in deciding in my head who was a real teacher, who was a false teacher. The sort of cocky young man, I think, is a probably a fair description. Now, it's important to point out that some Christians are forever on the lookout for false teaching. They get obsessed with it. And that's not what we're to do in our lives. But I think it is clear that reading chapter 2 of 2 Peter, the issue of false teaching and working out what it is, is important. That basically, if we're not concerned about false teaching, then we're really storing up a lot of trouble for ourselves in our lives. See, Peter tells us we need to open our eyes and see how dangerous this false teaching can be. See, again, some of us go looking for trouble. But others of us maybe so desperately want to be united that we deny any differences between ourselves and other churches or other Christian organisations that we'd love to work with. We're prepared to overlook major distortions of the gospel just so we can say we're united. And the danger there is that unity becomes sort of a false God rather than a living God who made us, who's the Father of Jesus Christ and whose gospel is always going to invite disagreement. We're told again and again in the Bible that the message of Jesus will not be accepted by everyone. People want to water it down. People want to ignore it. We have to be ready for that in our Christian lives. It's a useful question to ask. Which 
end of that extreme am I on? Am I always looking for faults? Am I always looking to judge other Christians because they don't agree with everything I agree with, everything I hold dear? If that is the case, we need to humble ourselves. We need to see that Jesus is a gracious God who calls people from various traditions together to serve him and to be his witnesses. But if the extreme we fall on is busy never wanting to look closely at what other churches, other Christian organizations believe, just ignore it, make it all go away, then we need to have our eyes open to what Peter is passionate about here, which is to really go against false teaching because of the harm it causes. See, false teaching isn't just a concern of theologians. It affects all of us. And Peter gives us a couple of reasons why that is. But see, false teaching brings the name of Jesus into disrepute. That's verse 1. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. See, the name of Jesus is still a really popular name today. I mean, even when Christianity is being dismissed, Jesus is a popular figure, and he's used to endorse various things. I was watching a documentary last night about um, the political systems in America and how Jesus is often invoked by various political parties to say, God's on our side, we're, we're Jesus' party. Jesus used to endorse Christian financial services that possibly aren't as strong as they could be, but this is Jesus' bank, so let's go with it. He's used to endorse dieting programs. I remember hearing of a video in a Christian bookshop of, of Christian dieting and it took its proof text from the words of John the Baptist about Jesus, he must become greater, I must become less. <laughs> you see, there are lots of distortions of Jesus today, and there are a lot of Jesuses around for people to follow. But Peter reminds us here that we need to meet the authentic Jesus, that we need to proclaim the authentic Jesus if people are to come to know him. And we need to know him if we're to grow in our faith, in our love for God, and our love for one another. See, the more we know the authentic Jesus of Scripture, the more we will reject the false Jesuses that are sent out among us. The idea that Jesus is someone that will just make us feel better, make us healthy, wealthy, prosperous, but which bypass the cross and which are based on a lie. So false teaching brings the name of Jesus into disrepute. False teaching can also destroy Christians. And we're going to look at that as we come to the end of this chapter. But I think the big reason why false teaching is so important for Christians is that false teaching is an important issue for God. False teaching concerns God. God is opposed to false teaching. And that's verses 4 to 10, the second section. See, if we're still asking the question, why should I be concerned with this whole issue of false teaching? Then the bottom line is that God is concerned with it. And if you're a Christian here today, then the whole of your life, the whole of all of our lives, is spent getting our concerns in line with God's concerns. God is passionate for the lost. He longs for lost people to come to know him. 
So we should be passionate for the lost. God is concerned about the poor, about social justice. So we should be concerned about the poor and social justice. And God is concerned about the dangers of false teaching. And so we should be concerned about those dangers as well. You see, in these verses, verses 4 to 10, again, we're not going to spend very long in these, Peter uses three Old Testament examples of God's judgment to remind his readers that God will actually judge false teachers at the end of history. He's going to judge those who deny Jesus and reject their need of him. So verse 4, first of all, Peter describes angels who rebelled against God. Now, we don't know much about this rebellion. Um, there are various ideas of what this actually is describing. Um, it may, this rebellion may have occurred during the time of the flood um, and been at least partly the cause of the flood. But again, I'm not going to spend too long on that. The important point Peter makes is that these angels were punished by God for their rebellion. Then verse 5. God punished the ancient world for rejecting him and ruining the world he created by sending a flood And then verse 6, God wiped out the towns of Sodom and Gomorrah for their rejection of him and their cruelty towards others. See, Peter uses these examples to assure his readers. He's telling them that God isn't sleeping. God has judged people in the past and God is going to judge people in the future who reject Jesus and who make the lives of God's people a misery here on earth simple fact is that if people reject God and his gospel here on earth, God will reject them at the end of history. But Peter doesn't leave it there. It's merely a message of judgment. Instead, he actually points out as well that God always rescues people at the same time as judging. God will rescue his people from the judgment he's going to bring on the world. That happens right the way through Scripture. See, when God judges, he always provides a way out. He always provides a way for people to trust in him and escape that judgment. God's judgment and God's salvation go hand in hand. And the supreme example of that in all of Scripture is the cross of Jesus. See, at the cross, God judged sin. He punished sin in his son Jesus. And by doing that, he saved those who will trust in Jesus. But there are other examples, and Peter uses two of them here in chapter 2. Peter's examples are Noah and Lot. See, God saved them both. And Peter sees them as examples for Christians to draw comfort from. So first of all, Noah. Well, in verse 5, Noah is described by Peter as a preacher of righteousness. See, Noah was a lone voice for God in a world that had wholeheartedly rejected him. Noah was isolated because of his faith in God. And in a similar way, Peter knew that many Christians felt isolated and do feel isolated today because of their faith in Christ. They feel isolated from their families, from their friends, from their work colleagues, 
And Noah is an example to us of that. But if you look closely, to add insult to injury for Noah, on one level he was this preacher of righteousness, but he was also an amazingly unsuccessful preacher of righteousness. Again, if anyone knows the story of the flood, no one actually listened to Noah's message, apart from his immediate family. Noah had no success in telling people to turn back to God. But I think an important thing for us to realize today is that God still saved him. See, God's rescue of Noah was not dependent on Noah's success rate as an evangelist. And God's love for us and his promise to rescue us if we trust in Christ is not dependent on how successful we are in bringing converts to Christ. So I think the example of Noah shows that actually there is little place for frustration or guilt in our relationship with Christ. Sometimes we long for those we know to come to trust in Jesus. Some of us may have been witnessing to a friend or family member for 20, 30, 40 years with no effective result. But God's love for you is not dependent on that success rate. God's love for you is dependent on his grace and on Christ's death for you. All we are called to do is to be faithful to the message of Jesus and to leave the results to God. And then there's the example of Lot. And again, I think the example of Lot is an amazing example of God's grace at work. Because again, if anyone knows the story of Lot in the book of Genesis, he's far from what we'd expect Peter to describe as a righteous man. Because see, when I was at Sunday school, um, Lot was always a cautionary tale. Don't be like Lot. Lot just makes a mess of things. Lot just is a, is a chancer. But God's Holy Spirit gave Peter the insight to call Lot a righteous man and led him to liken Lot to the Christians he was writing to. Because just as Lot was living in a godless society in the city of Sodom, he was surrounded by people who rejected his God. So Christians today are forced to live in a godless world where a lot of the people around us reject the God we worship, reject the God we love. And Peter tells us that Lot was distressed and tormented by the words and actions of his neighbours. But God was faithful to Lot and God rescued him from that situation. And Peter reassures his readers that God is faithful to them also, that if they are distressed and troubled by the things they're seeing around them, God can and will rescue them from those things. But the question I was forced to ask when I thought a bit about this, what Peter tells us about Lot, is really, am I that distressed and tormented by the world around me? Are we a people who get upset about others who reject Christ and who live in such a way as to just be so destructive to themselves and to the lives that God has given them? Does it bother me that so many of the people in the world don't want to know about God, don't want to know Jesus? In many ways I have to say the answer is no. Often I'm 
apathetic to that and just resigned to the fact, oh well, I can't expect them to live in a way that I'd like them to live. In a way that God would like them to live. But we can't ever get like that. We mustn't get apathetic. Or worse still, self-righteous and presume, well, I live in this way because I'm a better person than that person or that man, that woman. I think we need to learn from Lot what it means to have a passion for God's holiness in a place where that holiness is rejected. And we need to learn what it means to suffer in our prayers for people that they would come to know Christ and to see the destructive nature of life without God just clearly. So we do have things to learn from Lot, Peter tells us. So basically, those first two sections then, Peter seeks to open our eyes to the reality of false teaching, that false teachers are a reality, we need to be aware of that, and to the reality of God's future judgment of them. God is going to judge these false teachers. But what exactly does the false teaching look like that Peter's talking about here? And it's got to be said, Peter doesn't give us a blow-by-blow account of it. Instead, the big way we can see false teaching at work, Peter tells us, is through the attitudes and lifestyles of the false teachers themselves and the attitudes and lifestyles the false teachers want others to adopt in their lives. And that's verses 10 to 20. See through the false teachers and the false teaching. Now we don't have time to dwell on these, um, but just a brief cross-section of what Peter tells about these false teachers is helpful for us in thinking who might be a false teacher in our experience today. Basically, first of all, the false teachers are bold and arrogant. They're, they're cocky, they're pride. And we've got to say that is in stark contrast to Jesus, to the servant king who gave up all his privileges and died for us. So these, these false teachers are very unlike Christ. Another thing is they speculate endlessly about things that God's word doesn't tell us. Here we're talking about celestial beings and angels. Basically they ignore the fact that Peter told us earlier in this letter that God has given us everything we need for life and godliness. There's no point running after things that the Bible just doesn't answer for us. That's just endless speculation and it won't help us and it won't help others. And a final aspect of these false teachers is that they're forever looking for satisfaction outside of Christ. The examples Peter cites involve sex and greed for money. But there are many modern equivalents. Looking for our happiness away from Jesus. Jesus is so far is okay as far as he goes, but I want something more. That, Peter says, is false teaching. And we need to be wary of it. And verses 17 to 19, I think, are Peter's most memorable denunciation of these false teachers. I'll just read these out for us. He writes, These men are springs without water and mists driven by a storm. Blackest darkness is reserved for them. For they mouth empty, boastful words, and by appealing to the lustful desires of sinful human nature, they entice people who are just escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom while they themselves are slaves of depravity. 
For a man is a slave to whatever has mastered him. See, Peter is damning about these false teachers. And predominantly he is damning about their tactics. If you see that in verse 18. See, who do these false teachers aim for? Peter tells us they target the weak. They target young Christians, recent converts who don't know God well enough to see through that false teaching, who are more open to their lies and suggestions. And this makes Peter very angry. Again, it's a bit like terrorists today. Often you see when terrorists are at work, they target the weak. They target civilians or children because they're scared of the strong. And in the same way, these false teachers don't go after an apostle, they go after young converts. People who maybe believe what they're telling them. And that does make Peter angry. And I think here in Peter's anger, we see his real love for the Christians he's writing to. His pastor's heart. And we see his absolute conviction that God is going to put things right. That's verse 13. Then look back at that. These false teachers will be paid back with harm for the harm they have done. So the questions Peter asks of us when we think of this false teaching are quite simple ones, really, but very important ones for us to think about. Are we looking after one another in this church, especially when we're feeling weak? Are we looking after recent converts among us, making sure they're learning more and more about Jesus and about the gospel of grace that saved them? Do we know when the people around us are feeling weak and feeling vulnerable? And when we might be vulnerable to any teaching that would drive us away from Jesus and the gospel of grace? See again, Peter's commitment here is that we need to look after one another. To be concerned for one another, as Peter is for the Christians he's writing to. We need to pray for one another. We need to listen to one another. And we need to encourage one another when times are hard. Because it is when times are hard, we are all that bit more vulnerable to false teaching, to falling away from Christ, to giving up. So basically, Peter has a lot of anger about these false teachers in this chapter. But finally, I think there's a warning for all of us today. Because Peter gives us a hint that we need to be careful ourselves not to fall into the trap these false teachers have. We cannot presume that we will never take on that teaching, that we are immune from false teaching. We need to stay close to Christ throughout our lives and to listen to God's word every day if we are to stay strong ourselves. And that's the last two verses, verses 20 to 22. Be careful not to fall into the same trap as the false teachers. Because you see, when you look at the way Peter describes these false teachers, we have to accept that Peter describes them as people who once knew Jesus themselves and who've fallen into error. Just read verses 20 to 21. 
if they have escaped the corruption of the world by knowing our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ and are again entangled in it and overcome, they are worse off at the end than they were at the beginning. It would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than to have known it and then to turn their backs on the sacred command that was passed on to them. Of course, this opens the whole question, can a Christian fall away? It's a very difficult question. I don't think Peter answers it directly here. So I'll take that as my justification not to answer it directly myself. But Peter does describe the false teachers as believers who have fallen into error. And Peter doesn't tell us whether they can come back to knowing Jesus again. But what he does do is say these form a powerful warning to us to stand firm and stay close to Jesus. We must never oppose false teaching from a position that says, I could never fall victim to that. I am superior to these false teachers. I am stronger than them. See, Paul, in another letter in the New Testament, issues a similar warning in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 12. He just says simply, if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. When we think finally about who it is who's writing this letter, that should really make all the more sense to us. You might remember Peter, of all the disciples, is the one who swore he would stay faithful to Jesus. When Jesus predicts that all the disciples are going to run away when he gets arrested, Peter says, even if all fall away, I will not. But you see, Peter's self-confidence was misplaced. He was proved wrong. He ran away too. He denied he even knew Jesus when he was asked. So Peter warns us here against self-confidence. See, that is why Peter is so passionate in this letter. That Christians remember the gospel of grace. That we stay close to Christ. That we make every effort to make our calling and election sure Because all of us are weak and all of us are capable of falling in the way these false teachers fell. So we all need to stay close to Jesus. We need to acknowledge our weakness and ask him to keep us in the knowledge that he is faithful and he will keep us if we ask him to. So basically Peter has some stark warnings for us. He tells us that there's danger from without, from false teachers, And there's danger from within, from ourselves. And the only antidote to that is that we stay close to the shepherd and overseer of our souls, Jesus Christ.